Welcome to the Science Show on Cambridge 105. In today's show, we hear about a delicious sounding subject that calls itself molecular gastronomy. Is there such a science? Well, as if to answer that, we meet a professor of molecular gastronomy who's worked with the top TV chefs. He'll tell us about his kind of science experiment and you'll pick up a useful tip for cookery success. And if only to prove we're no cookery show, we've news from the world of science that, uh-oh, the emperor penguin is in peril. Yikes, I love those guys. Plus a quirky discovery that a parasite that causes malaria changes the way your body smells in order to attract more mosquitoes to your skin double yikes all that and even more after this bit of a tune This is The Science Show on Cambridge 105, the community radio in your city. We start with a hello from me, Roger Frost. And with a hello from me, Chris Kreese. We have 30 minutes of brilliant science they never told us about in school with a very special focus on sciencey happenings here in Cambridge. And we'd also like to welcome our guest presenter today, Daniel Edward. He's here to tell us how those cyclists in the Tour de France psychologically prepare. Hello. Great to see you. Well, we start today with a conversation I had with Peter Barham, a professor of molecular gastronomy. He was in town to give a talk about the science of taste and flavour, although he also holds another professor title in polymer physics which is a bit more ordinary I think at the University of Bristol in fact he's also the editor of a journal called flavor which covers the science of molecular gastronomy yes and I just have to give a shout out here because that's the same name as Alan Matt and Ruth's food show on Cambridge 105 incredible that's on every Saturday morning but how did they think of the same name <laughs> unsurprisingly perhaps Peter Barham has worked with a number of restaurant chefs including Heston Blumenthal you might know him of the celebrated Fat Duck restaurant in Berkshire. If you've ever heard Heston talking about cooking food, you'll have noted how he often debunks the myths of cookery. Yep, I can recall one of Heston's challenges when he was talking about meat recipes. And not just one recipe, but nearly all of them say that you should brown the surface of the meat to seal the juices in. According to Heston's experiments, that doesn't do that. Anyway, I caught up with Peter Barham as he was just about to give a talk at Churchill College. So adding to the atmosphere, as you'll hear, you'll catch the audience arriving as I grab him for this 10 minute chat. So Peter, tell us what you do. Well, I have three chairs in three universities, which is a great trick. So at Bristol University, which I've been based at for the last 40 odd years, I'm a professor of physics, where I'm largely responsible for teaching, but I also do research in polymer physics, which is where I started out life. I also have developed two other careers, one in penguin biology and conservation, where I have a chair in Cape Town, and another one, which is what we're talking about tonight, in food and food science, molecular gastronomy, and I have a chair in Copenhagen, where I play up with that game. Okay, defend the words molecular gastronomy. They're, they're completely indefensible. They shouldn't exist. They came about purely by accident. The first meeting with the organization was held back in the mid-80s, I think, 
and it was organised by Nicholas Kearty, who was a physicist at Oxford and Elizabeth Thomas. To get a scientific meeting on the science of food and good food at that, they had a fancy name, and the meeting was called an International Workshop on Physical and Molecular Aspects of Gastronomy, which is a horrendous mouthful. So when we had the second one, we just simply called it an International Workshop on Molecular Gastronomy. That's where the term comes from. It's utterly meaningless and, as you say, completely indefensible. It has been adopted so much now that I can't escape it, and I actually hold a chair in molecular gastronomy. So I don't know what it means, but that's what I have a chair so in. it must be proper. Well, yes, but it doesn't really mean that. It's really the science of deliciousness, if you like. That's a good definition. Oh, that's nice. Tell me about deliciousness, then. I mean, the sort of questions that fascinate me and, and, and why I'm interested is, what makes food delicious? Why can something be delicious? But more importantly, why can a food be delicious to one person and hateful and revolting to the person sitting next to them at the same time? And yet, that's absolutely true. How, why is it I can prepare the same food in two different environments. One environment is really delicious, the other environment is pretty awful. All these things happen all the time to us. So understanding what it is that makes food really great is a really difficult science. It involves every part of science. It involves starting with where the food comes from, how it's grown, how it's transported, how it's processed. Processing doesn't necessarily mean a big factory. It can be in a kitchen. A kitchen is nothing other than a chemistry lab, really. And then what happens to you while you're eating it, what happens to you after you've eaten it, because all that affects your appreciation of it, and then what your memories of similar foods are previously. It turns out that when we really start to delve deeply, the things that affect our appreciation, our perception of flavour and deliciousness most, are not the food and its taste. They're actually to do with the environment and psychology and how it's presented. So if I give you a food and tell you a wonderful story about it, the psychology of you understanding that story will actually give you a different impression of the food than without the story. Okay. So, for example, in, in restaurants, we, we have done experiments in restaurants, so if you go to a restaurant and the waiter gives you a story of the food, explains to you how it's been lovingly crafted by the chef, in one example. Another example explains to the bare sites, another example says nothing. The people's perceptions of the food are different in each case. And depending upon the person, the explanation can actually be different. So the, the, the wonderful story of the loving chef's care and attention to detail will impress some people, whereas the detail of exactly how it was prepared and the temperature prepared at, and that, that give other people an impression. So you have to know not just the story you're going to tell, but who you're telling it to and what their experiences and ideas are. It's a very complex subject. Okay, you've led me to my next question, which was to ask whether you actually do experiments. I mean, I'm doing experiments on food all the time, sometimes accidentally. I'm actually in the process of writing a paper on satiety, how people determine how much they want to eat or drink, on the complexity of food. And I did this by chance, because a different reason. I was actually looking at trying to figure out with some friends, just as a, as a ad hoc experiment, whether they actually enjoyed the same food, having eaten the same food twice. So I prepared a menu, and then I asked the same people to come back about three weeks later and eat the same menu. What I did change was the wine I served. And the reason that was, the first time they came, I gave them a rather expensive wine. And the second time, I hadn't got a bit left, so I gave them a rather cheaper wine. Um, this is me being tight-fisted, perhaps, but it turned out the one difference between the two meals was not their appreciation of the meal or the wine, but the quantity of wine they drank. They drank far less of the high-quality wine than the cheaper wine, without knowing what it was. 
because it was in decanters both times. So what that tells us is something about how complexity of a food can actually relate to how much you want to eat before you're satisfied. Another example of that is if, if I offer you as much of a chocolate as you want to eat, most people will eat as much as they can of a fairly bland, ordinary chocolate. Something like a, a milk chocolate is very sweet, for example, yeah. eat several bars. But if I offer you a very expensive, highly complex, with multiple layers to its aroma and its tastes, dark chocolate, you'll actually eat less of it before you'll say, that was great. So you will actually eat fewer calories, fewer sugars, fewer fats, if you're eating something which is more complex in that context. Now, the other hand, there's another side to that. You can't use this directly to say it's a health benefit because you've got to be really careful. The complex food is completely satisfying in a small quantity, and that means it has to be an enormous quality, not just any old quality. And that is another problem. What is high quality for a person varies by person. And in fact, your perception of quality changes through your life. As you eat or experience in general more complex things, be it food or music or painting, anything, as you move up the complexity scale, so your liking, your preference also moves to the more complex. So as we experience more complex things, we tend to want more complex things. So we tend to move up that scale of complexity for what's just right for us at any one time. And if you push someone a bit beyond that, then they take a bit less of it. So but if you think of a music analogy, someone new to it probably would only would take loads of Beethoven, not much Stockhausen. But later in life, they may take plenty of Stockhausen, but less okay. Beethoven. I was looking at your book, and there was a section on food and temperatures of cooking, cooking or and ways of cooking. There's a whole range of things that we've done over the past 10 or 12 years, well, no, 20 years probably, wow. where we've been looking at the science of what happens to food in the kitchen. And... The difference between precision and experience. A simple story which relate to this. I was about 20 years ago in a restaurant kitchen with a one-star, Michelin-star restaurant. Yes. Um, quite a decent kitchen. I knew the chef very well. And I was talking to a pastry chef who was in the process of making some chocolate. And he was tempering chocolate, which is a fairly straightforward process of crystallisation and nucleation, which to any physicist who knows anything about crystallisation and nucleation is utterly trivial to control. It, all it is is temperature. It's all you can control, nothing else. So he'd done this tempering, and he was doing it by the way that if you read a traditional pastry chef's book or chocolatier book, it's to do with texture and glaze and stiffness and terribly complex, and it's a really difficult process. But I'd never imagined for a minute it could be regarded as difficult, but he was doing this. And what happened was he'd been making a large batch of chocolate and it went wrong. And he threw a tantrum, threw his spoon across the kitchen, said several words that probably shouldn't repeat a like company, and then calmed down a bit. I just said to him, what's the problem? He just said, well, I've messed up my uh, tempering. And I said, well, why? He said, it's, it's, it's difficult, it's complex. No, it's not, it's easy. He looked at me like I was mad because I'm just some odd... I mean, I was a friend of the, the, the main chef. He knew I was a scientist and had some fancy handle, but that didn't mean I knew anything about chocolate to him. So I said, well, here we are, just drop another batch. He said, well, I, you know, I only got five minutes, I had to make a chocolate. Well, that's OK, five minutes, plenty of time. I said, no, it isn't, it's OK, fine. Yeah. I got my thermometer out, tempered his chocolate for him in about two or three minutes. He, he literally sat there, open-mouthed. He could not believe this could be done. 
and then he bought a thermometer. <laughs> so he actually learned. Explaining to him why it worked with temperature took me several weeks because he just didn't understand what was going on. He knew what happened, but he didn't know why it happened. Chocolate is, is a reversible change. Yes, well, chocolate is a really good one. I mean, chocolate is an example where it's straightforward, very, very simple physical process of crystallisation, yeah. and anyone can make it work. If somebody on a food programme was listening to this, is there any one science fact you could give them? that might change the way they cook? I think the simplest thing I would say, science fact, is measure the temperature of your oven. Learn how your oven works. Some years ago, for the fun of it, I asked all my colleagues in the physics department of Bristol to take a thermometer home and measure the temperature of their oven when it was set at a peak temperature. Let's say it was 160 degrees, doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. And then we plotted those temperatures on a graph. And we had a beautiful bell-shaped curve, as you'd expect, with the mean 10 degrees different from the actual target temperature. So overall, they were 10 degrees higher than the temperature. So if you do that, that will explain to you why your recipes don't work as they're supposed to, because they're set, not the absolute temperature, the temperature of the person who wrote the recipes oven. It's even worse than, so I mean, yes, simple so thing, wrong. so it's wrong. But if you do that, if you then know what temperature in your oven is, and you go and cook for friends, or you boil someone's recipe, all you've got to do is find the temperature their oven is, and then you can do the cooking. For baking, it's the, the only simple rule that you can follow, and all it costs you is a thermometer. That's true, although the parallax error on the on the, on the knobs... Oh, 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 windows, yes, of course, that's why this, if you... I mean, modern, I actually have got ovens which have got digital on them, and they are set correctly now, having had a discussion with the manufacturer about it. <laughs> OK, we're coming up to your talk now, the room's filling up. Mm. Distill a little fact that from... I think the thing that I'm hoping to get across to people more than anything else is that they will learn that they don't understand how they taste and they'll learn a little bit about what it is, where the flavour comes from and how it's constructed in their brains and hopefully they'll go away with an open mind and do some experiments at home. Excellent. Thank you. That was Peter Barham from the University of Bristol. Peter was giving a talk in Cambridge for the Cambridge Society for the Application of Research. So thanks to them for letting us in. You can find more talks given by the Society at the CSAR website, and we'll post that onto our podcast page. Incidentally, Professor Barham has a book entitled The Science of Cooking. His idea is that a kitchen is like a science laboratory and that cookery is itself an experimental science. And I had a flick through the book, Roger, on Amazon, where Peter explains, Mm -hmm. for example, what happens when meat is cooked and why some recipes work and others just fail. Okay. Well, this has always reminded me of a story when, from when I was teaching chemistry to a class of 15-year-olds. Now, the idea in my lesson was that chemical reactions could be made to go faster or slower, depending on what you did to them. And increasing the temperature of the chemicals by only 10 degrees means that the reaction rate doubled. So I looked for an example to explain that and I said, well, if you're cooking something in the oven and you increase the temperature dial by as little as 10 degrees, the cooking ought to happen twice as fast. Mm. So one curious lad put up his hand and said, so what's 10 degrees in gas marks, sir? (laughs) All right, well, let's move on to some recent stories in the news. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. 
Roger, we haven't done science news in a while, so how about a catch-up, then? Yes, please. All right, I'll start. A new study says that emperor penguins are in peril and deserve endangered species status. The paper published in the journal Nature Climate Change predicts that all of the Antarctic emperor penguin colonies will be in serious decline, many by more than 50% by the end of this century. The reason given is climate change, which is causing sea ice to melt. So like those penguins in March of the Penguins. But why is melting sea ice even a problem for emperor penguins, Chris? Yeah, well, I think emperor penguins are reportedly quite dependent on the sea ice for their livelihoods, which also makes them very sensitive to the changes in concentration of sea ice. Right, but it says here that the study's lead author goes by the name of Stephanie Genouvrier, who's a biologist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, has a quote for us about this. Yes, Genouvrier says the role of sea ice is complicated. Too much ice requires longer trips for penguin parents to travel to the ocean to hunt and bring back food for their chicks. But too little ice reduces the habitat for krill, a critical food source for emperor penguins. Our models, she says, take into account both the effects of too much and too little sea ice in the colony area. Okay, well that makes it sound like the concern is based on predictions only. Is that right? Yeah, it sounds like that. But actually the research is based on a 50-year intensive study of the emperor penguin colony in Terre Adelie in eastern Antarctica. The researchers have been returning every year, Roger, can you believe it, to collect Mm. biological measurements of the penguins there. They've been charting the population's growth and sadly decline. They've been observing their mating, foraging behavior, how they raise their chicks, as well as tagging individuals to follow them from year to year to see how they're doing. Okay, well, returning to Antarctica every year is obviously no small feat. Just look at what happened to the former correspondent on the Guardian newspaper, Alok Jar. Mm. When his visit, their ship, which was full of Russian researchers and so on, and others, were trapped in the sea ice for over a month. Yeah, there's actually some really great video footage of that online. I'm not sure if you've seen it. Um, Roughest seas in the world, so hats off to the researchers who make that journey every year. Okay, now tell us, let's go back to these emperor penguins. What happens to them now? Well, the researchers offer some recommendations for new international conservation, including some possible refugias to help protect the population. Apparently, Antarctica's Ross Sea will be the last place impacted by climate change, and they think conservation efforts should be focused there. Okay, that's another reason, surely, to address climate change. Indeed. Though I would say I think we might be in more trouble, Roger, because all penguins are great swimmers, but all humans, not so much. Not me. Thanks, Chris. Moving from the chilly South Pole to the sweltering tropics, would you believe that malaria parasites change the way your body smells to attract mosquitoes? That's really fascinating and kind of disturbing. So should I give a quick background on malaria? Yes, please, tell us. Well, it's a disease that's carried by mosquitoes in the tropics, as you mentioned, and subtropics. And it's caused by this nasty little protozoan called plasmodium. And the infection's pretty serious because it can be fatal if it's left untreated. Mm -hmm. There are flu-like symptoms that develop Mm -hmm. within about one to two weeks after being bitten by an infected mosquito. And to complete its life cycle and spread into more people, the parasite needs to get picked up by more mosquitoes. Thanks, Chris. Well, this new study published in the journal PNAS describes how the parasite does just that. It attracts more mosquitoes. And rather than leaving it to chance, the plasmodium parasite appears to change the characteristics of the infected person's body odour, which makes them more attractive 
to hungry mosquitoes mm. in my in my dreams. <laughs> That's in your nightmares. But surely this study wasn't done in humans, right? No, it's done in mice. I guess that means then that the findings aren't directly applicable to human malaria, but the process might be similar. That's right. So the researchers are now studying people in Africa where obviously malaria rates are much higher than anywhere. Okay, so they're doing a follow-up study. But looking at this study, how does the parasite change the way the host smells? Well, according to this, when the parasite is reproducing, that's when the mice were most attractive to the mosquitoes. But interestingly, the odour changes are not caused by unique scents. Instead, the malaria pathogens alters the levels of compounds already present. Okay, that makes sense because any unique smells, any unique chemicals that they introduce or something might warn off the mosquitoes that the malaria is there. And of course, mosquitoes don't want to be infected either. Nice. But what's really surprising is this change in your body odour sticks around for life. Oh, wait. Think about that. So body odor was still different even after the malaria was treated? Exactly. The researchers found that even when infected mice no longer had any symptoms, their body odor still showed that they were carriers of the pathogen. Huh. Though not all stages of the disease smelled the same, the smell or the scent profile of the acute infected very ill mice was different from the unique smell of mice at later stages of malaria infection. Oh gosh, I wonder if those scent changes were also detectable by the mice too, do you think? Because uh, if so, I bet that affects their ability to attract a mate. Uh, well, it's an interesting parallel with the humans. Anyway, that could be the worst symptom, couldn't it? <laughs> That'll be worse. <laughs> Good point. Get malaria, now they've left you. <laughs> anyway, in all seriousness, the researchers hope that these findings might be used to develop a new non-invasive way to detect malaria in humans. We'll put the link to that on our website. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. Now we've got Daniel Edward telling us how athletes mentally prepare for events like the Tour de France, which was in Cambridge on Monday. Hi, Daniel. Hello. Yes, well, well, like the rest of the city, I spent the whole of uh, last month excitedly watching Tour de France street signs going up, uh, followed by themed bunting hung across Market Square, and also those cycling-related displays in all those shop windows. So on Monday, I, hang out, uh, I hung out the uh, window of my top-floor room on Trumpington Street. Oh, lucky you. I know, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to catch some of the peloton as it uh, whizzed through uh, Cambridge City Centre. Anyone who's ever got on a bike, or even run after a bus for that matter, will know the physical requirements and effects of exercise. However, what struck me as the crowd of professional cyclists glided through the city was that I could have walked past each and every one of them in the street without thinking that he was a sportsman. Sure, their, their muscles were, were more toned than mine, uh, but they weren't muscle machines. Hmm. And it, it dawned on me how impressive the achievements of long-distance athletes actually are. Uh, and it, it shouldn't have come as a surprise to me that, of course, a huge proportion of their training isn't physical techniques at all. It's psychological tactics. Uh, Dr. Jim Taylor is a sports and business psychologist. He, he's a keen cyclist as well and has entered two Ironman contests. Brave man. I know. And he's developed a, a training framework to help cyclists achieve prime cycling. Ooh, okay. What is this prime cycling? Well, Dr. Taylor used to use a term called peak cycling, uh, but he was concerned that he wasn't achieving very strong results with any of his trainees. And he realised that this may have something to do with the connotations of the word peak. Once you've got there... 
there's only one way to go. So uh, he decided that uh, instead of using uh, your peak, and what happens if you reach your peak a week before the race, or, or even a week after the race, uh, he used the term prime cycling, uh, which encourages cyclists to ride consistently at their best, even in challenging conditions. Okay, so I'm curious to know how this works exactly. So how does he do that? He's designed a pyramid model. Um, this is the prime cycling framework. And the way it works is each level of the pyramid, starting from the bottom, enables you to reach the next level up. So once a cyclist has mastered all six levels in the model, that's when he or she will be at their prime. All right, well, let's indulge me in a little bit of fiction for a moment and pretend that I'm this fantastic athletic cyclist. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the first stage of the model? Where do I start? The model starts with motivation, and this is the key to almost everything we put our efforts into. If we don't have the motivation to do something, whether it's at work, in sport or a hobby, we're just simply not going to push ourselves, and we've closed off an opportunity to achieve something. So the ability to recognise what makes you motivated enables you to make the most of your potential and progress to the second level of the pyramid, which is confidence. Okay, confidence. So if, if I understand what you're saying, just believing you can achieve a goal means that you can? Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty much it. Humans are amazing at convincing ourselves of our own abilities or lack of abilities. Mm. We do need to be realistic. Be being unrealistically confident is a symptom of a diagnosable disorder. But the <laughs> cognitive control to remind ourselves that when the going gets tough, we've still got something left in our reserves to get us through, and it, it's often enough to just push us over the finishing line. Okay, so I'm looking at this pyramid right now, and about halfway up, it looks like Dr. Taylor has labeled here stress or intensity. Now, what does he mean by this? Yeah, so halfway up this model of prime cycling, uh, Jim Taylor uses stress or intensity, and he uses a scale from sleeping to being terrified. Uh, but what this stage really alerts cyclists to is that there are varying levels of intensity, each level providing different benefits and drawbacks. Mm. So high intensity in a sprint is, is great. It's what you need. But if you, if you had high intensity in a long-distance marathon, you'd be absolutely scuppered. Mm. Something else that is key for achieving success in cycling is the ability to focus. Yes. Losing concentration is a real danger for sportsmen. For example, this year's Wimbledon showed us just a few examples of sportsmen getting tired and losing their focus. Yeah, and getting back to the Tour de France, just look what happened to Chris Froome and exactly. our beloved Cav. It's, uh, oh. it's such a shame for, for the British team out there. But uh, to get past this stage in the prime cycling framework, Jim Taylor suggests using keywords such as brave or attack. So when your attention is drifting, he says you can drag it back to the task at hand just by saying these words over and over to yourself. Okay, so next time I'm cycling and I'm getting a massive leg cramp or feeling really exhausted or something and my attention drifts, I'm going to try that. So brave, attack. All right, so it's a matter of self-control is what you're saying here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and as are the final two stages of this pyramid model of, of prime cycling. So the penultimate stage is emotions. Uh, we've all played a sport or been competing in a task at work that just isn't going to plan. Oh, we're yes. motivated to <laughs> succeed. Yeah, we, we, we're confident in our ability we've judged the level of intensity right, we're focused on our goals and it's still not working. Mm. Perhaps we get angry or, or we might despair. 
It's obvious that how we're feeling can positively or negatively affect performance. So emotional control separates the true pros from the rest of the pack. Yeah, oh, that's very true. So if a cyclist is in control of his or her emotions, that sounds like they've pretty much mastered everything. Is there anything left to master or is that where it ends? Well, the summit of this pyramid is pain. Oh, <laughs> how could I have forgotten pain? <laughs> exactly. If you're, if you're ever doing a, a professional sport, you're going to get to that pain threshold. And we hear it time and time again that there is no gain without pain. Or if it's not hurting, you're not trying hard enough. Well, the final stage of, of, this, uh, of this pyramid model to achieve that prime cycling is to successfully respond to the pain of striving for challenging goals. Inexperienced cyclists dissociate from their pain and try and focus on other things. Ah, uh, yes, that would be me. I essentially do anything I can think of to try and distract myself from the pain of the moment. Exactly. And you'd expect that that would be a sensible approach. But it is much better to associate with the pain, as professionally trained cyclists do, and use it as information to improve your ride and, and achieve your goals. That's really similar to meditation training, too. So it sounds like you're trying to actually get in touch with the pain. Okay, so let's imagine here that I've been cycling for a while and I've got this really bad leg cramp. Then what do I do? So if you were an inexperienced cyclist, like us, uh, you <laughs> might think, ouch, oh, that really hurts. And, and then I would focus on watching how fast the road passes under my bike or something, just to take my mind off of it. But the more experienced you are, you'll see this cramp as a, a polite warning from your body that you're no longer using it to its full potential. And then you might change position or shake your arms out a little bit. And that would relax your muscles, lower your centre of gravity mm. and relieve your pain, improving your ability to achieve your cycling goals. Brilliant. Well, I'm going to apply all of these messages and maybe one day I will be in the Tour de France. Fingers oh, I can, crossed. <laughs> I can dream, right? Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you very much, Daniel, for coming in and telling us about cycling stuff we did not know. The next show that we have will be in two weeks on a Saturday at 5.30pm. That's right. And if you want a reminder of that, you can follow us on Twitter at 105science. Meanwhile, if you have an event to promote, a question about science to share, or just want to get involved, you can email us on the email science at cambridge105.fm. 